Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Claire O'Connor and I'm here today with my co-host, Connor McCabe. Uh, we're going to take things a little bit differently today. We have maybe three or four of the kind of big stories of the week, but we're going to talk in depth about a report that Connor has just done um, in Clare around towards an anti-poverty strategy. And that really feeds into what is one of the biggest topics at the moment, the kind of cost of living crisis. Uh, as always, um, I'm just going to point you to our Left Block Patreon. Um, we had an event last week the, on Inishir, so it was the Skull Cush Clee 2022. It was an eco-socialist eco festival all around political education. And I have to say, it was the best political education event I've ever been involved in. It was organised by Left Block. We had some incredible speakers there. We had a lot of young trade union members, political party members, activist organisers. Um, we had, we had Bernadette Devlin speaking. We had BJ Prashad, you know, Steve Baker, John Barry, uh, we had Victoria Sandino, an ex-FARC commander and senator in Colombia. It was incredible, so inspiring. And if we're already planning next year, but tickets sold out this year and literally within a couple of hours, they went out first to the Left Block Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in coming again next year or any of the other events, we are going to have some political education events coming up over the year and um, pop over to our Patreon. So that's patreon.com forward slash left block with a C. So into this week's stories, Connor, I am... Um, a couple of them have jumped out at me this week. Uh, I don't want to get into them in too, too much detail because I think your report is incredible. I've been reading it since yesterday. Um, but just a couple of them that I think are really important like around the things that we usually talk about. So Paul Murphy during the week um, was asking the Taoiseach for more information around a, a technically a US-led what is a military alliance. Um, and it's called the Ukraine uh, Defence Group. And it's it's very vague in what we're actually doing in it. The Taoiseach wouldn't answer questions. And the only real information about it is from an, an Irish Times on Sunday article back in May from Brian Mahan. And basically it's, you know, a bunch of countries, the Pentagon welcomed Ireland to it back in May and every country is going to host it basically. And this isn't the kind of EU initiative where Ireland said that we were going to give, you know, money just to non-lethal supplies, you know, that we weren't yeah. going to, you know, in some kind of ridiculous farcical way that we were we were holding on to our neutrality. This is something totally different. And whatever your opinion is, you know, because obviously there's a lot of discourse out there at the minute um, about our neutrality. But this is very clearly the government acting in a way that doesn't, um, it's not transparent, it's not open. They're not even answering questions on the floor of the doll. And I think it's just very dodgy. I mean, if we hold one of these events, this is us hosting a military alliance in support of Ukraine. Ukraine. How we can pretend that that's any kind of neutrality i just think is absolutely farcical yeah you know i mean you know like like there's obviously there's a big push from the establishment anyway and, and it has been for years um the, the government you know over and getting into the arms sector or kind of arms industry you know and um and they you know and they are focused on that you know um like like um you know that that seems to be kind of their focus uh they're exploiting kind of Ukraine just for the moment for that. But if, if it was kind of Ukraine, it would be kind of something else, you know? I mean, you know, like, you know, the, you know, this is like 15, 20, 30 years, like, you know, just trying just to kind of chip away at, at Ireland's kind of neutrality. But it's, it's, it's to get into the arms industry. It's to get yeah. into the, it's to get into kind of having like, three percent of Ireland's kind of GDP kind of tied up in arms, you know, and, and, and then getting all those kind of details. Like, you know, even down to Shannon, like one of the main uh, benefactors um of Shannon, um, as far as I know, was one of the private 
earliest and firms who had links with like Fine Gael. I just I just can't think of you know of their name now, you know. So like Shannon is about business. It's about, you know, even even like you know, having kind of US planes can land in Shannon, it's the money that's made from it, you know. Yeah. And um and that's how I would see it. So yeah, they're using kind of Ukraine, but it wasn't that it, it would be something else, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, they have a plan. And and you know and they'll get us there uh, somehow. <laughs> yeah, sorry. They'll get us there somehow. Well, they'll try. You know, you know, like I mean, like the fact that it's take, like they they have been out of four four decades and haven't really making them much headway shows how difficult it is that that they're not getting their own way on this. Uh, Irish people are quite proud of of not just being kind of neutral, but of not being a kind of a kind of military state. You know. And yeah. um, it would be, it's it, it's going to be even more difficult for them kind of going forward to try and sell that, you know, especially yeah. given that, that like, if they couldn't sell it when Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael were getting 85 to, to kind of 9% of the votes in the state, it's going to be even more difficult when they're getting 25 to, to kind of 40%, you know, they'll still keep at it. But, but, but like, yeah, I mean, that's the way I would see it. Yeah. And I, even when we talk about neutrality, I mean, sometimes I think it's a farce because when you talk about military planes landing in Shannon and everything we know, but I just think it's just that whole lack of transparency and the fact that they don't even feel obliged to answer questions on something like this uh, you yeah. know, on the floor as well. Um, another big story actually was in the Irish Examiner. Keenan Brennan was talking about how Ireland is one of just two nations that have failed to apply for a key European Commission funded initiative. So basically it's aimed at ensuring continuity of energy supply in the wake of the, the Russia-Ukraine war. And like it's it's massive money now. I couldn't, I, I was trying to look into it and I was trying to get the details to see if there was any kind of counterproductive, you know, rules that came with the money. If that was the reason we didn't, we didn't apply for it. But it was basically just us in Luxembourg. And the the capital budget that could have come to us from that application was 800 million and it's renewable energy you know it's called mm. rep power renew and uh and uh, like down the line it could be worth 1.3 billion in future supports to us and it just seems th- their answer when they were asked basically was uh, you know it was a, it, it was a non-answer they kind of just said oh we're looking at our options you know it didn't say that they had missed the deadline it didn't say that there was a reason that we didn't apply um, an energy consultant now he is a former MEP Karen Hartley but you know he said it was a really costly missed opportunity it would have given us access to kind of guarantee security of supply and I mean when you look at we're talking about blackouts during the winter it just seems outrageous that like whether you agree or not with us being in the EU if we're in the EU to benefit from things like this and to benefit from these kind of shared pots of money or you know low or, you know portion of power basically and then we don't even apply to a massive fund like that I and mean, we're one of only two in the whole of europe not to, it just seems absolutely you now italy did, got four and a half billion from it last month um, did you like, say kind of like what's it for is it, is it for building like is, is it for capital kind of uh spend yeah, is no, it for, it's it's for infrastructure so like, state yeah it's but, a state kind of is a state or is it loans for kind of private Oh, is a... that's what I couldn't find I couldn't find enough information on it yeah. um, so, but basically it's a po- it's like clean energy transition like that mm. is the point like it's supposed to be for clean energy transition so it's capital money I mean again 800 mm. million of what we could have applied for in this uh, in, like in this uh, time frame was capital money 800 million of, of capital infrastructure money that we again and it's about moving towards that kind of renewable energy you know so they talk about Italy using it for biomethane and like it doesn't it's so I don't know what it says we would have used it for if we could have used it for the kind of um renewable energy that our government are trying to push us towards 
but it just seems outrageous that we didn't we didn't put any money in for it. I mean, like it's 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 it just seems very typical of the Irish government, to be honest. You know, they will push the EU as this is exactly the kind of thing that we need to be in the EU for. And then we don't kind of even benefit, you know, in the long mm. run. But um, yeah, so that, that was, again, that was just one of the big stories. One of the things that I was going, uh, you know, actually I'll come to it in a minute because I think it feeds into your report really well. Last one before we move on, though. Uh, Jade Wilson in the Irish Times and Connor Kaplis and the Examiner both had a story about the church removing sacraments from skills. And there's been loads of kind of people really excited about this. You know, this is this has been talked about for a while. The church saying that, you know, if people really want to be a part of the church, then they have to kind of come to the church to register their kids for communions and confirmations and the sacraments. Um, but when you read into the article, first of all, it doesn't say when it's going to happen. And also the it says religious education, which is basically indoctrination, is still going to happen in schools. Mm. So all of that teaching is still going to happen in schools. The time, I mean... I, I, have a, I have a child in fourth class and I heard that they're talking, you know, in second class, it's like at least a half an hour a day. And when you come to it, sometimes whole half days are spent on the sacraments as you're coming up to it. It doesn't look like that's going to change, you know, and it's a, it, it's one of the things that still really boils me blood. But when I see people celebrating this, I'm just like, I have no faith. All this is going to be is that you have to register with your local church, you know, or maybe you'll have to go and do forced confession through them. You'll have to just do increased, you know, time with the actual parish, I'd say. But it doesn't look like anything has actually been taken out of the skills. You know, it says Catholic schools are still going to have the same. It's called it religious education, but it's really it's anti-science religious indoctrination. Yeah. Like junior infants, because I have another I have a child in junior infants as well. They have the, the book is called Grow and Love. Right. And when you go through it, there's a page I tweeted this a couple of years ago and people like a lot of it, it went really viral and people are absolutely outraged. But it's when you go through the book. They have kids, they have a space for kids to draw a picture and it's drawn a picture of Jesus on the cross. And when you think about that, I think we've probably talked about this before. You're, you're telling kids to draw a picture of somebody being hammered to a cross and brutally, you know, like beaten and, yeah. you know, a crown, a, a crown of thorns and blood coming out. Like it's just, it's twisted. But um, that's also, yeah, basically I just wanted to say, I've seen a lot of people really excited about it and at least it's, it's some kind of move in the right direction. But it doesn't actually look like it's going to change anything for over 90% of our skills. There's still going to be full religious indoctrination. The same time is going to be spent. It just yeah. looks like they're going to try and push the actual parish stuff even a little bit more. Well, actually, on that point, I mean, the work that popped into my head was that one of the kind of, one of the like unexpected kind of bonuses of, of the Queen Elizabeth's death, and there have been many, it's just been great crack, like, but like um, has been that uh, that, 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 that Enoch book, Burke has just been, just completely taken off the entire <laughs> kind of news or whatever. He's there suffering away in like Mount Joy and nobody gives a bollocks. <laughs> I think it's fucking great. So fair play, Lizzie. Fair play to you, you know? Yeah. Oh, it was actually kind of perfect timing. Anyone interested in that can go on to Twitter and find the hashtag Mornhub and yeah, you'll find all you need on that. I just can't even, I can't even bring myself to give a minute of this podcast to that farce that's going on over there. But I do hope, actually, do you know what? One thing I do hope, kind of tying into the cost of living stuff, there's people in the UK that are, you know, more people than ever are going to starve to death. There's that, that people are going to die because of how bad the situation is over there mm. this winter. And if they, I, I just hope that when they see the amount of money the obscene amount of money that's going to be spent on a funeral, on a coronation, on changing their banknotes. I mean, changing all their money. Like, and God knows, you know, God knows what else. That'll all trickle down. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more money spent on other things as well. Yeah. That when they do that, it might just give them a little rattle and just think like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing when people are dying and we can't pay our bills? And, and this is what they're spending money on. But 
I don't know, because like you know, like you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange one because I mean, even in even in the kind of British left, it's a very strong kind of monarchist streak in the in the British left, and even down to like it's very, it's very, it's very, it's very kind of colonial in its, yeah. uh, you know, elegant its thinking. Like even the fact that like like one of the reasons why kind of Jim Larkin formed his own kind of trade union back in nineteen. 1911 well 1908 was that he like there's a few reasons but one was you do not understand us you do not get us you like you have this view of empire and you think it's great and we're saying to you it's not and 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 james Connolly had the same view of course and that never changed like they still have this great view of the empire and it just runs through the whole kind of british left and you can see it you know in them you know that they don't they they don't I don't think they've really kind of copped on somehow, but as a movement, I'm not sure it has kind of copped on that no. all the anti-Queen stuff has nothing to do with Elizabeth Windsor. It had everything to do with what the where what the crown kind of stands for in terms of the whole kind of colonial kind of project. Yeah. And they're just how you know what I mean? So- like, how can you be socialist if you're not anti-imperialist? Like that's really what it comes down to. And it's the, oh, that's the that's, that's the British that's the British kind of trade union movement and has been for two hundred years. You know what I mean? Like you know, like you know, it's an like even down to the Boer War. Like like James Connolly first gets arrested for for protesting against the kind of Boer War back in eighteen ninety nine. And the British trade union movement is aghast at this, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, because it's, it's, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the white man's burden, you know, it's Britain bringing kind of bringing civilization to the world in the form of war, famine, uh, pestilence and, and, and kind of genocide, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's uh, just, a, just an evil of the last kind of 200 years has been the entire kind of British empire and hundreds of millions of people murdered just to put kind of, you know, kind of jewels in that crown, you know, mm-hmm. and the you know what I mean? Like, and a lot of the British left just, they talk go about on. it, they go on about it and they use some, you know, kind of some of the language. We haven't really sat down and actually, actually mm-hmm. thought about, you need to decolonize your entire movement. They have no fucking idea as to what that means, you know. I think though as well, it's, it, it's so rooted in working class communities over there that I think mm-hmm. the British left, there's a cowardice in it, that they just they will be seen as too radical and that they, the working class communities, and rather than, and we see this so often, rather than actually try to talk to people, try to share those true socialist ideals and try to decolonize, you know, our own communities like that, they take, it, it, there is a cowardice in it and they just pretend it doesn't exist and they try to, you know, focus on the likes of, you know, labor and, and other kind of trade union issues, but you, you just can't because deep down, if you don't have those principles, if you don't have those socialist principles, you're part of imperialism, you're part of colonialism. And I was having this conversation only yesterday, actually, with some other left block people. I mean, we were talking a lot about this kind of stuff last week. Um, again, Vijay Prashad is just incredible on uh, on the anti-imperialist stuff. But somebody said, it was only yesterday, somebody had said, in Ireland, we have a, a similar type of issue around anti-clericalism. Like for a long time, that a lot of people on the Irish left, you know, there's not enough of that anti clericalism and we don't kind of acknowledge that we had our own after colonialism I say after colonialism you can't there is no after colonialism but certainly after we got independence you know the way the church just took that space and 
you know, even in our own kind of left, obviously there are people who who have spoken about it over the years, but just not nearly enough. And we don't have enough of a, an acknowledgement at a societal level, I think, about the damage that has and still does. And I think the fact that we still have the church and schools going back yeah. to that story it kind of shows that because if we had a really good, truly socialist, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist um, understanding and political education throughout society here, we would acknowledge that and people wouldn't accept that anymore. And well, like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, the, well, you know, on that point, I mean, like, like it's true about just the role um, of, the, of, the, of the kind of Catholic Church. I mean, like myself and Alex Snake on the Mercier talked about this in our kind of uh, podcast deck from two weeks back. Like the dominant, the dominant, uh, you know, kind of theoretical or the dominant ideology in the Irish Canadian movement is still Catholic social teaching. That is, it was never socialism. It was not James Connolly. They will use the name, but it was never, it was never kind of his ideas. It was the, it, it was the ideas of Verum Novarum of the, of the Pope's kind of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, like, like letters of the 1880s, um, 1890s. And that just permeates through the entire Irish kind of trade union movement. The largest made their kind of, the largest single May Day like, demonstration in Ireland was in 1949, and it was in support of a Yugoslav um, cardinal who was a Nazi collaborator and was in jail after the war. And uh, his name was kind of Stepanik. And there was over 100,000 trade unionists marching, ca- campaigning for, like, for kind of his release. The guy was a Nazi, and they were campaigning for... And his release, like you know, like I talk about that, but like that idea is still there. You like that's what kind of social partnership is based upon. It's based upon yeah. a Catholic social teaching view of it, and it's it's quite interesting that where kind of partnership happens in Europe is in Austria and it's in kind of Germany. It, 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 like Austria that, that has a very conservative, like Catholic kind of streak to it, and Germany, especially kind of southern Germany, you know, has a very strong kind of Catholic kind of influence as as well. You know, but that's that, that's a dominant kind of you know kind of ideology. And I again just from my own kind of experience of the of the Irish movement, I don't think that's 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 really kind of realized, you know, just what that means in, in, in terms of actually organizing, in terms of why why should you compromise until you have to, you know? Well, that's it. It's it's the compromising and it's the and there's been a lot of talk about this in trade unionism, about what trade union, unionism has become in t- terms of being almost like a service provider rather than, you know, about radical reform for workers. But you know, if you if you were listen, we're talking about centenaries now. You know, the past couple of years, and if you talk post independence, colonialism wasn't what kind of destroyed the South for a hundred years, and what caused like so many of our issues for a hundred years. It was bringing the Catholic Church in and giving them so much power over all our institutions. That's been the lasting legacy. So I think that while we talk about that, you know, the the, the internalized colonialism within the the British left acknowledging our own you know not whether it's unwillingness or whether we just haven't been able to do it or what you know what the reason is or whether it's been you know captured that our own anti-clericalism within the the Irish left as well uh, lack of anti-clericalism uh is really important because we're still how can we teach how can we expect an education system to teach children critical thinking when we're teaching them when we're indoctrinating them into a religion that is ultimately anti-science so mm. um 
Yeah, that's fascinating though. And if anybody hasn't listened to that uh, podcast with, with Connor and Sinead, it, it's really brilliant. Loads of people were talking about it last week at, at the, the Eco Socialist Festival, actually. They were raving about she it. Was down, she was down at the, you know, at the weekend yeah. herself, then Sinead, yeah. Yeah, so Sinead delivered one of the workshops. So there was a whole stream through the weekend that was delivered at Skelge. So because in a year as well, is you know, is an Irish-speaking language, mm. Ireland. Um, when there was workshops on, one of them was always, there was a, there was an Irish-language-speaking group and Sinead delivered one of them. Um, and I mean, Sinead's just brilliant. Like, you know, you know yourself, like she's she is so insightful. But she, she was part of other workshops as well around climate destruction particularly. But yeah, no, she delivered that one on Square. But loads of people were talking about the, the podcast you guys did. They, they were really raving about it. They loved the kind of the, the walking around and the kind of relaxed element of it. You know, that conversational element. They talked about she went on the on the IFSC because I mean even even they're talking about like for me that's 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 where Ireland is still linked in with with the British kind of colonial kind of empire is the yeah. IFSC you know um yeah. like I mean like, you know you know what I mean like you know so like be worthwhile kind of having one of them but actually a walking around and actually explaining what that means like how Ireland is still part of the, of the British empire and how it is mm-hmm. is true the IFSC itself you know yeah, we'll do that. That's something for everyone to look forward to now in a couple of weeks. We'll definitely get that. <laughs> I have just one more story before I want to move mm. on to um your report. And that's Eva Grace Moore uh, in the Times today, actually. She has, uh, it's, an, it's an article about housing, basically, but it's how investors snapped up a vast majority of Dublin's new built housing. So this is after the government introduced increase, um, increased levies for institutional investors in buying properties. Problem was they didn't do them for apartments. <laughs> So in Dublin, so she actually has the figures here. Basically, that there were two thousand one hundred and forty-six completions in Dublin, um, in in the the period, and sixty-eight percent of which were bought by investors. Sixty-eight percent. Mm. So, I know most of our listeners have heard this a million times, and they know it. But just to put that into context, if you have a person or a couple or a family that sees this new build going up in their area, they could probably get a mortgage for maybe twelve hundred euro for that property, which in itself is, you know. Should be obscene, but now seems really cheap. But they could probably get a mortgage on that for maybe twelve hundred euro. An institutional investor goes in and buys up the whole block, and they rent them out for then two two grand a month minimum at this stage because it's still mm. rising. So that that person or couple or family or whoever it is is now paying almost double the price that they could have paid to someday own that property. That. And it just shows that even when levies are, because the article goes on and it does talk about the levies that the institutional investors are paying, and they have, they have paid a lot more on taxes and levies than, than stamp duty than they had previously. But the profits are so high for this. Mm. That's not them. That's a drop in the bucket. Like that, the fact that this isn't turning them off and the fact that this, and sometimes it is too complicated. I think people, dis, it's made to seem too, too complicated. People disengage. But at its very simplest, the government are allowing, continuing to allow year after year, institutional investors to come in here and force people to pay twice what they should for housing like that's it that's just you know that's it in black and white and it's and obviously like it's, it's mostly in Dublin I like think you know Aoife goes around the country and she talks about how like so like the national completion stands at five and a half thousand and investors bought 36 percent so that's nationally around the country it's mm. a third and it's two thirds in Dublin so they're, they're obviously they're focused on where they can make the most money. You know what I mean? This isn't, they're not buying a property to just having their portfolio there. Like this is their, their price gouging in the places that they can afford to price gouge the most. Um, so like last year, the government announced a stamp duty rate of 10% uh, for any fund buying more than 10 houses, but it didn't apply to apartments. No. Like fund, funds, yeah, fair enough. Sometimes they're buying up housing estates, 
but apartments are where their money is and always have been and it's we said this at the time we said that this is such a bullshit move it's it's going to be a drop in the ocean and even the money that's going to raise isn't going to be or, you know or the money it's going to add on to their cost isn't going to be enough to turn them off no. like they're, they're they're basically going to allow this until there's no space left to build and there's no buildings left and then the country will be mostly owned by foreign international investment funds and it's like it, it does infuriate me that there's there's not more outrage about this because People don't see it. There is a finite amount of land. Now, we have plenty of undeveloped land and we have empty houses and all of that. But these investors are going to own all of this. Like, and when the, you know, when the crash comes, they'll offload it and they or they leave places sitting empty until they can make a profit again. And like, these are just, we need to really go back to having conversations about like absolute basic necessities to live. And if housing isn't one of them, I mean, housing, energy, food, like, the state isn't providing these things. It's just, you know, it's not, and not even providing them, not giving them to people. It's not providing access to them. And it's just, that, like, that's it there in black and white. That's actually, um, they can't deny that this is happening. So the fact that they mm. still don't know about it is infuriating. Yeah, I mean, like, what's the opposition's kind of stance on this? Because, I mean, like, like for me, um, it's about, they can put a limit on, on how many people can, on how many housing units any one person or, or like any one kind of um you know block can buy and, and just make it one you know so it's uh, so it's one house it's one household um but as far as like as far as i know that's not any of the opposition's um policy either you know so i mean like like you know like i i, I don't think i don't think that the penny has dropped or if it has they're not willing to pick it up that um that this is not about this is not about the money like anymore these funds have access to tens of billions hundreds of billions hundreds of billions um they can borrow um um internationally it's about access to the housing units and you just limit that and they could do that through declaring a national kind of emergency, emergency and say yeah. and say that for for the next five years no one no one person no one company can buy more than one housing unit unless you're unless you are an approved housing body and it's for social housing you know um but even there but that gets kind of dodgy because a lot of these kind of uh like a lot of these companies have moved into social housing yeah, the, the private you equity know. now is getting into the yeah. approved housing bodies and we've seen that. We've seen a couple of them, mm. particularly last year. And and then we found that there, there was research done and there was some kind of whistleblowers as well, that people that were in those units from those housing bodies were receiving a substandard. Well, they weren't receiving care because usually what comes along with approved housing bodies as well is a certain level of support or maybe linking in with other services or, mm. you know. And what we're finding was that people weren't being treated well. They were being evicted for minor things and without really, you know, good due recourse. And we were finding there was one that had a horrific damp problem and they just weren't doing anything about it. Like, because they're there for the profit. They're there for the profit. They're not actually there. Their central mission isn't to provide housing. So uh, it's, yeah, like, I I think as well, this might come into the conversation about the, the upcoming referendum on a right to housing. And there's, lot of you know lot of feelings on it out there and even within the left i'm seeing a lot of people talking about how it's not going to do anything and like the reality is is having that put into the constitution isn't going to suddenly make the government build houses it's not going to make people you know give people a, a, an opportunity to take cases right away but 
And it's sad that we're at in a situation like this. The government, because of their ideology, roll the AG out, the Attorney General out. Just anytime anything is mentioned around restricting cuckoo funds or REITs, you know, right to, to buy a apartment block. And they roll out the right, the right to own property in the Constitution. And they, you know, they say that anything that would be brought in to limit that would be unconstitutional. That's it's bullshit. Like, I mean, bullshit. even the... we know it's bullshit. Like, we know it's bullshit, but, but they still do it. Whereas if we had a balancing of those rights in the Constitution, then it would go some way to preventing them to be able to do that. Like, yeah, I've got yeah, I've got a different view on that. I mean, like I would be of the view that that is a real that is a very real danger of this just turning into, um, you know, it's it's the it's it's the wrong it's the it's the wrong strategy at this time. And um, it listen, it's got it's got a lot of play. It, you know, people seem to be it, it, like like we kind of want for it, you know. But the right, but the rights of children have been put into the constitution. Like, but the issue is not having stuff in the constitution. It's that is this enforceable in law? Yeah. So, and, and the warden, even if it does get put into the constitution, more than likely the warden will be watered down so much that it doesn't mean anything. So, like I, I think, mean, like, like you know, like, like it's about can they be? Are they? Are they enforceable? by law you know what i mean like so like you know there are certain constitutional rights which are not enforceable by law at the moment and one of them is like it's the right to join a like trade union and have that right can recognized so there's no right to to trade union can recognition even though there's a right to join the union and like in dig on the constitution there are rights for the protection of children but you can't but you can't bring a court case if you know about kind of child poverty you know, or you know how that how kind of child property kind of affects kind of rights of like children. You know, so in housing, yeah, it's it's like put in. It's already balanced through the fact that all all property rights in Ireland are balanced by the need for the common good. So it's already okay. there. You know what I mean? Like, but it's but like that that just needs that that just needs to be kind of defined in law. But it's a legislative one, so they could do this in the morning. There's no need for a fucking referendum. They could do this in the morning. It's a it's a, it's a letter second response. I've I always have a problem with kind of with kind of politicians running to the constitution or groups saying let's change the kind of constitution when really there's enough there in it that we could actually just bring in kind of legislation which can be done in a matter of hours, as we saw with the uh, you know with the IBRC kind of bank. That was yeah. that was liquidated in eleven hours. It, it, legislation was kind of brought in. They could actually bring in kind of legislation to solve kind of housing or give kind of you know kind of balance of rights in 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 housing in eleven hours if they wanted to in half a day, but they don't want to. But so they want like, to. like I think this is why sometimes people feel like forcing a a referendum is an opportunity for the public to force the government's hand on it. I completely agree, though, about... I, I, like, like, you know, but, but like, you know, isn't there, is, isn't there a danger of, of, like, of just increasing kind of, you know, disillusionment? Because, I mean, you know, you know, if people put energy into a kind of referendum expecting that to kind of change things, and then it doesn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, no, like... No, I, I do, I do. I don't think that's going to make a massive difference. I don't. I say I don't think it's a negative. I don't think the cost is a negative. I've seen people talking about the cost. No, I think not. it has an. I think it has an opportunity to to mobilize people around these conversations. It will come down to 
how they write it, how much they water it down and where in the constitution they place it and whether they're, they're enforceable rights. And that, I don't have massive amounts of faith that the government who are the ones who will write this referendum are going to put it in a place that will actually make it actionable. But I certainly think that, I think it needs to be a right. I mean, I think it, like at its most basic, I do think that that needs to be a right. You know, I think of all the things that are in the constitution and I think that, I know what you're saying about the common good, but I think that the government particularly have just exploited have, you have they, they exploit the constitution and the AG comes out and says things that we know are blatantly not true like we know they represent mm. the constitution in a way that isn't true but I feel like if the, if if this was able to be challenged from within government and this you know this right in the constitution was able to be held up against that that it might minimize the their ability to keep shutting down because they they just shut down legislation it's like a money message they're able to shut it down immediately by saying this isn't constitutional so um yeah, I think that's a conversation that we probably have to do a whole podcast on that because that will come up. I want to touch on, well, I want to go to what the biggest section of this podcast is going to be today. And that is an incredible report that Connor has written and been working on for, I think, is it nine months, Connor? Yeah, yeah. It's a, there's, book, there's book on nine months there, yeah. And it's basically, it's towards an anti-poverty framework and it's, it's, it's based in County Clare. And Connor, do you want to give us an introduction to it? The argument I make in it is that there's a need for a change in the National Development Plan because that is, I can see a, a real danger of Clare being turned into a feeder county for Limerick and for, for Limerick City and not just Limerick, but for Limerick City and for, for Galway as well because it's sandwiched like in between them both wherever, you know. And, uh, you know, and there are like, even with that, there are fairly unique um uh, um, like, like issues that Clare is facing, which Limerick and and the other counties aren't uh, to the same extent, and that gets lost just in the way that stats are measured in Ireland, which is in kind of regions rather than counties. And um, one thing, actually, I do want to say. So, what we'll do is, um, when we put the podcast up, we can attach this in a thread. We'll put oh, the yeah, link yeah, yeah. Because I think it's a really accessible report. It's a great read. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of kind of charts, and it's it's just it's sometimes sometimes these things are read are made not to be read, and it's very clear when you're reading them. And this is this is written in a way that's really accessible. One thing I found really interesting was um because I've heard it coming up. You know, Sarah McHugh and Sarah were talking about it up in Ackle. I visited Sarah uh, about two years ago, and the holiday home issue. So, you know, you have people in Ackle who basically have lived there all their lives and can't find a property to live in and yeah half the year the place is empty and all the houses are empty because they're holiday homes and somebody one of the quotes in your report was um I'm paraphrasing now but it was along the lines of Asher Clare we're just here for wind farms and holiday homes aren't we yeah and when you look at the housing uh chart on it and it's basically like there's there's just under 50,000 47 and a half thousand occupied dwellings so let's say 50,000 and yeah unoccupied holiday homes make up 5,000 that's 10 percent and when you go into the actual statistics about you know people in need of housing um the figure you have in there is well this is in 2015 but there was almost three and a half thousand people in need of social housing with only 59 vacancies available um Mm. and then when you go back when you go forward to 2020 uh 1209 households on the social housing list have, have basically gone unchanged um so although the figure there was a 12.9 percent increase so can you just talk to us a little bit about that because i just find it i can't imagine how frustrating it must be to live somewhere where you can't find somewhere to live and yet there's these 
houses that are empty basically half or probably 90 percent of the year yeah i mean um it, it was hard trying to track down uh stats and figures for for the county clare um there's a big talk kind of down there around um how how important kind of tourism is to clare and you get this a lot and but when i went kind of digging for the figures for the actual figures there's around 4700 people employed on it's a yearly average but it, it works out as an you know as a yearly average of 4700 people and there's 4900 vacant housing a uh, vacant holiday homes there are more vacant holiday homes in clare than people working in like tourism and um it's like the it has a 96% vacancy rate. Um, they were built for the main, they were built because of the tax breaks that went with them. So they're the kind of a, they're the Celtic tiger kind of hangover. But the issue for people is that if you're moving into an area or, or you're from an area, it's hard to get planning permission if there's holiday homes in there because they're seen as being too many kind of housing but the holiday homes aren't being used so local people can't even kind of build houses on on land which they own or, or I find it kind of very I find it you know very very difficult because there's about half a dozen vacant kind of holiday homes coming down the road you know so there are massive problems with, you know you know with this but even from a tourism kind of point of view um there's again there, there's absolutely no evidence no research has been done on what is the benefit of all these vacant holiday homes to Clare. You will hear them. You will hear a, a government ministers, the local kind of council and, you know, and, and various kind of, uh, you know, kind of tourism groups down there talk about how important um, holiday homes are to Clare, but, but they have not provided any evidence kind of whatsoever. I mean, like I was coming across ridiculous uh, figures of 10,000, 12,000 people employed in in tourism in, in Clare, it's 4,700, like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're just like throwing out these figures. There's hearing kind of figures about, you know, a tourism brings in 100 million or 1.2 billion into Clare. It's going, well, where's the, where's the evidence for that? None whatsoever. Just figures that are almost literally pulled out of their arse, you know, and they're just like, and they're just accepted as, as evidence and I'm there going no it's not like this is not the this is not the case here it's around nine to ten percent of the of the labor force are, are, are in kind of tourism uh a work in tourism in Clare that's less than Dublin it's less than uh, like it, looking in Kerry it is 17 percent in in like Donegal it's 12 to like 13 percent so we hear a lot about how important you know kind of tourism is the Clare, but the stats don't actually kind of bear it out. What you get in Clare is that it has a high intensity of visitors, but not a high intensity of jobs. So you get 1.6 million people or, or 1.2 million kind of visitors to the Cliffs of Moher, but they're bust in and they're bust back out again. Yeah. So, so the only experience of Clare is, is, is waiting in the car park for their turn, you know? Um, so, you know, that's what this kind of that's what this kind of report found itself doing a lot of was trying to debunk a lot of the normative consensus that's there mm -hmm. around you know what happens in Clare, and I was I saying that. no, you know. Okay. And I then, found, yeah. yeah, one of the things that jumped out right throughout, and particularly around like child poverty and stuff, which we'll get to, was that whole point that 
the justification for spending money is very often not rooted in statistics or facts no. or research. And we've talked about this when you've done those breakdowns of like the CRO statistics or, you know, pre-budget. And, you know, we, we, you've talked about that before, but it really does drive home the importance of this kind of research, because if we don't, you can't plan for what you don't know. I mean, if we don't know what the actual figures are, and even at times you say like, you know, Clare County Council um, don't actually publish housing, the housing waitlist figures and stuff like that. And that's just... You know, and obviously because it's not Dublin or because maybe there's not as much push locally, you know, to publish those figures, they get away with it until someone like you goes and asks for them. But they do publish, they they publish the the housing waiting time list, but it's but it's by but it's by kind of household. It's not by how many people are actually on it, like you know. Yeah, what the need is though. No. Oh needs, they have no idea. Yeah. Like need is not is not kind of assessed, you know. Um yeah. so you know, so like even down to like the government, ha- uh, as part of the program for government, they uh, uh, the government uh, launched an anti-food poverty strategy and an anti-child poverty kind of strategy, and neither one is measured nationally, regionally, or like locally. So there's actually no stats whatsoever on child poverty, and this and the government says yet we have a child poverty uh, strategies. Well, no, you don't. If, Do they if have not. Like what's the, how, do they have goals? How can you measure a goal if you don't? It's all have? yeah. It's all that. It's all that vague kind of you know, um, mid afternoon talk show, airy fairy. Let's all hug each other. Fucking goals. You know what I mean? Like, it, like, like it's not anything that that's real. It's all about we want to be like child poverty is wrong. So so, so, so we're going to try and get rid of it. It's going, yeah, that's 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 great, but this is Nelly. You know what I mean? You know, like that's incompetence like, though, or do you think that do you think it's incompetence? Do you think it's they don't want to highlight people to just how horrific it is? Yeah, or yeah, you, it's, it sounds it's, outrageous. Like it's just you know, it sounds outrageous that we don't know what the numbers for child poverty. Yeah, is. I mean, like I say, you know, like I said, you know, in the reports that you know, there's a lot of. There are certain kind of government kind of departments which have a vested interest in not having these things kind of measured. They have a real problem with measuring kind of poverty because then they probably have to do something about it. And um, that really kind of comes true, you know. So, like, it is unjustifiable. Like, you know, like, the fact that these things are not measured, that they're not kind of counted, that they're not kind of, they're not kind of quantified in any way kind of whatsoever, in any way. It'll go wherever. Even even fuel poverty. If we're going into a winter that is going to be, you know, terrifying for thousands of like households, and yeah, fuel poverty is it, it is not measured. Yet there is on paper an anti-fuel poverty kind of strategy, you know. And up, certainly up until recently, but again, if we can't measure, how do we know? We had the highest rate of deaths from fuel poverty in Europe, which is, I mean. How that doesn't make it into the headlines more often is mm. a really, you know, certainly a dominant indictment of how this is covered yeah. in the media. Um, what do you think? Because as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is exactly what's needed. If you're to inform a policy that's actually going to have an impact, impact, these are this is the information that you need to have. What's the next step for a report like this? Yeah, well, um, like for me, it's a, it's um, it's a, it's a stage before like an anti like a genuine kind of you know anti-poverty strategy for Claire because um like what I was able to do was that in the in the stats I was able to find when I kind of cross-referenced the picture 
that was emerging from those stats with the underground kind of sessions because we did uh, four five um eight group sessions um in Ennis in Kilrush in Shannon and then there was an online kind of survey as well and when we got people's kind of personal kind of experience that it that tallied with the stats I was getting so then was able to draw a picture as to what probably looks like in in in, in Clare to try and compensate if you know it it, it like for the fact that it's it, it's not measured um one of the biggest things it was in terms of um well housing it's a huge issue but um in health uh Clare has only 66 percent of the national average of of GPs in the county, um, it, I feel like it per heads per like per person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so national average is around six point six, uh, GPs per ten thousand, and in Clare it's four point six per ten thousand. For dentists, they only have fifty percent of the national average in terms of like dentists, um, and the national average is no gold standard. That's yeah. just to even even just to get to the national average and this. And so I was able to find that. And then that resonated with the information that was coming out of uh, the kind of group sessions where people in all three uh, areas said, um, said, uh, you cannot get a GP. If you're if you're on a medical card or just on the scheme, you cannot get a GP. He will he will take you on. They are they are more than than full. There are people in like Kilrush who are having to try and get GPs in Limerick who will who will take them on for a you know, fucking metal card. And that tallied with the stats that like I got. So then then was able then to draw a very strong kind of conclusion in terms of health and clarity that this is not just anecdotal. There's a structural problem in terms of service kind of provision in Clare, that's out of step with the other counties that that kind of surrounded, you know. Um, I don't so know, does that, to, does that lead to people going to A&E more or do they even have access? You know, if somebody's not getting served in a primary care setting and it get, their you know illness gets worse or they don't, that's going to have a, a lasting impact on their health. But also it might put pressure then on, on hospitals and A&E, does it? Yeah, well, like, like again, you know, there's no, there's no kind of A and E outside of kind of business hours in Clare, so, so you're talking about people having to get taxis sometimes 60, 70 miles, uh, just just to try to either get to to Cashel, or to get to kind of Limerick, uh, you know, city or 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 to Galway, you know, um, you know, like like what came out kind of very strongly was that there's a highly gendered aspect, uh, you know, to this because, um. This came from the participants themselves. All of the, all the, all of the, all of the stresses that come from trying to cope with a lack of services, trying to run a household or trying to have a kind of household, and then having to deal with the problems with housing, with health, uh, threats of kind of physical violence as, as well. These all fall back onto women and, and and their own kind of mental health kind of issues. And what they found was that. What they said, and this happened in all three kind of sessions, was they go to doctors to try and get some kind of a mental health kind of supports and they're given tablets. And you know, so there's a there's a pharmaceutical kind of response to what is a socio-economic problem. And and again, that was identified by the women on the ground. Like again, people are not stupid. Like it amazes me how 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 policymakers can't make these links 
there between mental health and housing. When the people on the ground in Clare had no problem saying my mental health would be immensely improved if the housing situation it, you know, was improved, you know. Um, so again, that's where we can get into kind of like this is an anti-poverty kind of strategy. And, you know, I, I talked about how stats aren't measured. So the, the obvious question was, well, then how did you measure it? <laughs> you know, if it isn't there, by looking at the stats that are available and then looking at kind of people's kind of experience, when that resonates, I think you can draw a very strong kind of conclusion that, that this is kind of structural. And we saw that. So we cover health, housing, transport, and mental health, um, racism in terms of the travel kind of community. Um, did you read the the, the travel kind of community section yet? Did you have a chance to have a have read to it? Yeah. I found some very powerful quotes in that. Did you read Can a you bit about the, you know, about the kids' uh, pay acting kind of funerals? Uh, no, 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 it's it, like it's it, like the, it, it was an, it was a it's a heartbreaking kind of thing, you know. Uh, rates of death by suicide in in, in the trafficking oh, community sorry, are sorry. are yeah. are are seven times higher than than the national average, and there are children who are are play acting kind of funerals instead of playing house. They're playing yeah. funerals, you know, because it's just so common, you know. And then you have people, you know, who just like this, this sheer racism, which is which, which a traveling community um, experience. And in every session, I did a standalone session with counselors and then we, and then we kind of activist groups and then we kind of look people it, 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 it like on the ground. And it was accepted as a fact that racism against travelers is socially acceptable. In the settled kind of community, it's seen as it is completely socially kind of acceptable, you know. And it's you just hearing it in the groups, like where you're hearing it from people, where you hear yeah. racism in those groups, yeah. No, 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 no. Like, like, but it, it, like the counselors, they were pointing out to me saying that this says that that they're battling this, you know. Yeah. But isn't where you hear where you hearing negative biases about, you know, travelers in other you weren't okay right, that's good. None whatsoever. Like all the counselors like to a body you know we're saying that you know we have solutions but you try bringing them to an area and you see that they actually going to kick back you know like you know like and they were they were talking about you know just how shocking it is to be faced with the racism that like travelers kind of and then obviously you know there's a travel group itself talking about there as well no 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 like the, like i mean but the councillors in Clare, they were great, you know, okay, and well. uh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and they were and, and, and they were just like they were highlighting the, the, the problems they face in trying to tackle kind of racism. Because you hear time and time again about, you know, the, the, the funds for traveller housing just not being spent year on yeah. year on year. Mm. And that's at a council level. And I mean, that's. It, and but that's the executive, though. I mean, you know, yeah, it, that's the executive, yeah. you know, and executive like, you know, there are issues in terms of. It kind of there was a part that it didn't get finished because of deadlines, but I feel that I should have maybe kind of held out and actually kind of finished it off. But there was some great stuff from the Stephen Lawrence kind of inquiry in Britain, you know, ten, you know, kind of ten years ago. Or so, and they talk about just what institutional racism looks like and how it actually moves, and and like you know how you can have ordinary members of the of the local councils who were would be aghast if you called them kind of racist. But they have to make kind of racist kind of decisions because the system is geared that way. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's an it's an institutional logic 
Yeah. And you can see that in terms of the state and local government kind of, you know, it, 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 like apparatuses. There is an institutional it, it logic that is racist, and it's not just against a traveling community, but, but you get into kind of a direct a provision, and then you get into Irish people of, of the color, you know, where there is people who are racist, but then there's an institutional logic that is inherently kind of racist. And that's why kind of we argue for a human rights kind of approach in terms of this as, as a way of starting that process of trying to change that logic, which has to be changed from the top down. Look, I know that, you know, as activists, we're all for kind of bottom up change, but there's certain things that can only be from top down. And when you have an inherent institutional logic that is not going to be changed through wellness courses or an, or an anti-racism kind of you know, it, it, it like weekend, you know, yeah, you know, like you know, no, that has to come. If the logic is racist, then that has to come from the top all the way down, and that's why we're saying that, you know, we need to drop this kind of charity kind of model and go for the human rights kind of model that is legally enforceable. Again, going back to the point around kind of housing, that that it's not just about kind of bringing in kind of human rights human rights kind of legislation. It needs to be enforceable via the courts, which you don't really have at the moment. Didn't Yeah, and didn't you have somebody... Well, listen, when you have at a TD level, when you have someone like Josepha Madigan with the leaflet she put out a couple of years ago, you know, just after the Carrick Mines fire and, you know, opposing traveller housing in the area and, you know, like what of a duck's back. I mean, she's mm. a minister and, like, it's it's... I think anybody who argues that we don't have serious institutional racism, particularly against travelers in this country, is is willfully blind or actually mm. ultimately actually believes that it's okay. Like you said, it is it is societally acceptable. But didn't you have somebody say to you that from the traveler community that um, you know, around suicides, if if housing was built, it would drastically reduce yeah. suicides in the traveler community? Like there's a real belief in that. Absolutely, you know, like you know, like 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 they they talked about how they were being passed over for housing time and time and time again, and, and they were saying that this isn't the this isn't the fault of the people who who got the housing, you know, fair play to them, but I want but we want a fair crack at the whip here, and we're not getting it because. We are travelers, you know, and then even down to half payments, like forget about that. If you're a traveler, just forget about it. Try and get a kind of private landlord who will, who will take you on. It's not going to happen. So you have massive, massive kind of problems, you know, you know. Yeah, no, it's it, it's absolutely horrific. I mean, the, we go back to Rosemary Mann. If anybody follows Rosemary Mann um, on Twitter, she writes regularly about she goes back to the policy documents you know, a couple of decades ago and how they talked about basically eliminating the traveller problem and that that problem, you know, wouldn't be fixed until all travellers were like assimilated into settled culture. And that's like Nazi language. Like that's uh, yeah. explicit. Like they talked about a, fi like a final solution. Like, like that language was actually used in some of these documents. And mm. then you wonder why that that institutional racism is in our institutions. It's always been there. And that's trickled mm. down in society. And, when pe and the thing is, it's coming back to even wider than Claire, but nationally, the cost of living crisis when people are struggling they it's so easy to turn them against each other and people do turn against each other and they do point to the person down the road saying you know well they're getting a house and i'm not and they're the problem rather than saying well why are we letting institutional investors make hundreds of millions of profit off housing when we're all squabbling for the scraps here and unfortunately mm. 
it does work and it's worked incredibly. And I think if there was any other section of society that had a suicide rate seven times the national average, it would be a national emergency. Like it would be mm. a national emergency. And I just think that it's a really sad indictment on all of us. I know if you're not really involved in being a solution to this, we're, we're accepting it. We are accepting it because I think mm. if it was any other section of society being treated that way, people would would feel emboldened to get involved. Well, you know, like, you know, like, like, you know, it's a, like, again, it goes back to, it's a socially kind of, it's socially kind of sexual, it's socially acceptable level or kind of form of like racism in, in, in like Irish culture, you know, you can be incredibly racist about um, like Irish travellers, and you're not going to get any kind of social kind of kickback, not really, you know, we will, and how I would like to think in our circles. Yeah. But I find myself, would, I find, but I, but 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 like you know, in general, in in like our society, you're not. There's no one. There's no one who's not like like. It's just seen as like, yeah, that's grand. We can do this, and actually, you know, can get a giggle out of it. Getting a giggle out of a you know at the back of a community that has seven times the national rate of like suicide, like and scumbags. children. I remember children. hearing people. I say, I, yeah. I an article about a young guy up in Finglas that that you know, took us on life recently enough, like a couple of months ago. And even the comments, you know, you still get some people in the comments and you're just like, how how sick do you have to be, mm. you know, to be able to convince yourself that that's okay or jokes are okay or like it's, but it is, I think it's much more a commentary on society in general. Like it has always been okay. I found myself in it at times over the past couple of years where somebody would use a word or make a joke and you pull them on it and you're made out to be, you know, oh, you're, you know, just some extreme lefty, or you're, you're woke, or you're, and it's just mm. like, and I've, I've gone back, but like, you know, children in that community are killing themselves at like ex extreme rates, like, and you mm. know, the, the rates about particularly young traveler men, like traveler men, or even just the life expectancy of travelers, like it's, it's sometimes thirty years, thirty or thirty years less than than settled people. I mean, in the, in, in, in the last census, there was one traveler over the age of. Of eighty in Clare, one, one, one. But I saw a, a traveller woman I follow on Twitter, and she was saying she had passed the age that both her parents had died. She's only in her forties, mm. but she'd passed the age. And she said that's that's massive. Like there's you know there's very little elders um, in her community where she's from. But it is this thing that Amory Quilligan as well talks about it regularly. She's an an educator. She's a traveller woman, and she. She's always talking about the young lives being lost within their own community. And I mean, how anybody can hear that and not be moved and shamed into, into action is, you know, I just don't understand it. Like these are kids, mostly. These are kids that are being treated like it's, I can't imagine any other community. Like even, listen, there's plenty of racists and there's, you know, we have, we have a lot. Our, our, I think our country is as rooted in white supremacy as any other country is. You know, I think the world is still rooted in white supremacy. But I think people, most people, will be a little bit more careful about any other minority than than they still would be about travellers, because inherently, the the kind of lies and the judgment and the bias towards travellers is so deep in Irish culture that people believe it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, but you know, just I, I just gone back, just gone back, back to the councillors in in Clare, and um, they also they also they also kind of pointed out to me that. Um, where you know it's 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 impossible to get kind of travel kind of you know kind of housing, uh, and it, it like approved in certain areas in Clare, and it's and it's equally impossible to get social housing kind of approved as well, you know. So like like this idea 
that it's sometimes said that <laughs> that some if someone's racist against travelers, they probably have other views as well. And you can see that kind of, you know, that, that like, you know, that it, it, it's not just travelers, it's also so-called kind of social housing, it's also kind of poor people, it's also that kind of, you know, kind of provision, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, like look at this idea that's used, you know, by the far right, that it's only this one group who are against. No, you're pricks against everyone, you know what I mean? Like, you know, so that's why, like, you know, travelers kind of struggles, they are as, as much air struggles as they have to yeah. be because yeah. because those who we're against, they're not going to stop at suddenly turn into, you know, Chairman Mao. It once kind of travelers have, you know, have been dealt. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what yeah. happens. They they don't turn into kind of Che Guevara as soon as the traveler issue is, is like taken off the table. Like, you know what I mean? Like they are, they're, they're pricks. They are 100% okay. pricks all the way through, like, you know. It's, but it, it is why we need a much larger class consciousness because like even I, I haven't finished the whole thing yet because I only got it yesterday but I, I did go through you know I looked at the headings and I looked at some of the quotes and stuff like that for the whole thing and even like anecdotally we would always hear that if you have a community or an area that is affected by poverty the more marginalised people are in those demographics the more at risk of poverty they're going to be so disability groups carers travelers like all of these and there'd be a gendered element to it and i could see that that was playing out in the statistics as i was going through it but it's the like you said you know a neoliberal government and a capitalist government are you know you have to look at how they're willing to treat the most marginalized society because that'll help it you know that, mm. that, that that's how they'll treat you if they can get away with it but it's the i think back to the statistics if people don't know and so often people that are struggling that much, I saw a figure in it that it said 70% of carers were struggling to make ends meet. Hmm. I think that's one of the biggest indictments we have as well is that the money that carers save the state, even for that alone, they force people to the absolute brink and they, they force people into poverty in doing that work, that labour, that unpaid labour is just so undervalued. And it's none of that is valued and i think if we don't have this class consciousness then if we don't all acknowledge that this system is never going to serve us the system is not fit for purpose you know and even like when we we're having a, con a conversation about the referendum with the it's, it's all tinkering it's all tinkering with a system that is never going to serve us we do need i believe we need a radical overhaul of the kind of systems that that we govern ourselves mm. by but uh i just think i think it's a brilliant report though i can't wait to get into you know really get into the nitty-gritty of it because i think you've done incredible work and how do we though how do we how do we get that for every county in ireland we get the county council to give you a ring <laughs> well i mean you know i mean like hopefully there's a template there now you know that that like can be copied you know that you know that that instead of just like giving up and saying well there's there's no stats so we'll just kind of move on says no there, there are ways of actually getting to the story like it means kind of you know kind of you know kind of using what stats are there bring them bring them they like all together and then just talking to people just talk to people you know yeah. you know and like like my kind of key line in this is that i don't really go into what an what an anti-poverty kind of strategy for claire would look like i i make the argument that i can identify that this national policy has to change here and I realized the dangers for for a county um, based kind of organization to to put energy into national policy because you you're just kind of you know you can take up kind of you know kind of too much kind of energy. But I don't see 
how else they can square kind of that circle of even in fairness to kind of Clare, Clare County, County Council, any strategies they put forward has to be framed by the terms of reference of the National Development Plan. So the so the game is rigged from the out. E even with the best of intentions, Clare County Council still has to have a strategy that will uh, that does uh, prioritize Limerick and Galway over Clare. So they have to work in that. So I mean, their hands are are somewhat tied here. So my argument is, well, untie those hands. So so that's why this document has 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 it's had a county uh, uh, like release on on uh, on Friday, but it's having a national kind of release on Tuesday, and that's in kind of Buswell's kind of hotel to try and say to the TDs said uh, this is this needs to change. Like you need to put some energy into this as well because this kind of national development plan it just is not working for Clare and I reckon it's not working for the other counties as well I, I'd say that if you did a similar kind of report for Cavan, Roscommon, Longford, Waterford, um, Carlow you would see similar kind of trends here because the national, the national development plan is based on five cities and that's pretty much it. Now, and everywhere else has been almost delegated to like second class feeder it again. is, yeah, yeah, and they want to move, you know, like, like, like there's other parts in it that 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 are, that are for kind of it's not a day because like time is getting on, but the whole kind of just kind of the just a uh, transition because Clare has the highest kind of concentration of beef and 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 cattle farms in the state. Eighty nine percent of all farms in Clare are either uh, specialized beef or or specialized kind of dairy. So when you talk about uh, cutting the, the herd. This is where it gets into where Claire needs its own just transition kind of, a, you know, kind of strategy, you know. Because it's going to disproportionately affect them. Yeah, it is I, because, I'd, yeah, yeah. I'd encourage everybody. We're going to attach it when we put this out, but definitely give it a read. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into the end of it because I just I got about halfway through and I think it's it's really detailed. And it the statistics and the figures and the experiences that people are telling you completely represent what certainly I've been hearing anecdotally from people in poverty for years at this inter intersectional element of it all and that you know people people experience it understand it. unless we live we listen to people when developing policy it's never going to make things better ultimately yeah exactly like you know and and like you know that was my experience that in in all those in all those kind of group sessions it was the people in the room who, who were making those links which which academics try and make out you know, people need to be taught that. So, no, you need to be taught that. The, the, there's a problem in in like policy kind of makers. They're the ones who have compartmentalized issues into their various things and then have suddenly, just in recent years, says, oh, we need to find some way of kind of linking these together. So people do this on the ground, lads. Listen to them. The people on the ground do this, you know. Um, there's one other story though that is definitely worth kind of uh, you know they 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 they're like dealing with and it's it's the return like Nosferatu <laughs> from the grave, but Bertie Ahern is thinking of running for for president in in like 2025. They've been dropping this out for a couple of years, talking like it, yeah. it, it, it's efficient. It, it has been efficient exercise, but I think they're coming very close to. The, but what's really sad is that even their arguments. I I seen a couple of people talking about how. You know, Barry's, Barry's contribution to the Good Friday Agreement, Barry's contribution to the North and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, let's take that at face value for a minute. right? Let's take Fianna Fáil, let's take that. Let's imagine that we agreed with that. How much of an indictment is it on current politicians 
that what they're saying is is that there's nobody of nobody of any kind of quality or any kind of ability that could measure somebody who has literally had findings in a tribunal against him that he was an embarrassment on the international stage who uh, I don't know I think most people have seen that video at this stage of him walking out when a journalist eventually just kept putting it to him that basically putting it in terms of corruption. I mean, he can't even interview like that because he can't answer those questions because we all know what the answers are. Imagine him. And I actually seen somebody today talking about what the potential presidential election looks like. And they were saying maybe Bertie Ahern, Jerry Adams and Enda Kenny. And I just practically slid off my chair because I was like, that is the most depressing thing I've ever seen. Now, I can think of a couple of people. I think of one in particular that I would love to run. I'm not even going to say her name because maybe maybe down the line. I know a lot of people have been, been trying to push her publicly. Like, But that is just so depressing to me. But the argument that somebody made is, is that if you're going to have Jerry Adams, now I have no idea actually if that's even a, if, if, if that's a thing, but that if you have Jerry Adams and Bertie Ahern up on a platform, any, any suggestion of criminality towards Bertie is going to be very easily twisted on Jerry Adams. And if that's the line of thinking they're going, no, on, like, like, like that was my conclusion as well. Like, yeah. that, like you know, that that Fianna Fall have have looked at it and have thought that it, it doesn't matter who who kind of Fianna Gael kind of put up, they're going, yeah. they're yeah. going nowhere. There's not another Michael D. Higgins figure out there. There's there's, there's not a Mary Robinson or a Michael D. Higgins mm-hmm. or, or or the kind of American McAleese figure out there. So basically, Bertie's. In a competition is, is going to be uh, Jerry Adams and if uh, and if Sinn Fein are in government, I f- I think that the pressure even internally I- in the party, it, it, you know, yeah, they like to run Jerry because uh, Martin McGuinness has has obviously kind of passed away. He uh, he would have been a natural choice and would have and would have walked away with it as you know uh, as well. Um, but they've done them. But I'd say that they've done the the maths and said well. We have a fighting chance against kind of Jerry Adams, you know, um, you know, because, and I think that's why they're bringing up the Good Friday Agreement kind of so much because they're laying the land for for Bertie kind of run, you know, it, it against kind of Jerry Adams and and the fact that on the kind of Martin, like uh, Jerry Adams is still ambiguous about his own kind of past. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it Martin McGuinness wasn't. No, that was for reasons because, like you know, he 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 served time for his membership of the IRA, but like but I, they 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 would play on that, and, and now it it doesn't mean that he'll win, but I reckon that they say that I reckon that 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 that, that they think that Bertie has a fighting chance against kind of Jerry Adams, who who Dave who who they're assuming is going to be his only kind of competition. I just uh, like I remember when Martin McGuinness ran, and I remember even from Dan, I was running. He would have walked it if if he was still alive. He would sail. Now, home. He yeah, would sail I, home. But know? there, I just remember this sense of kind of disbelief from him and Dan. I remember this uh, um, RT panel, uh, you know, one of the, the debates, mm. and Dan interjected after a question to Martin McGuinness, and she said, like, she's been shocked at the response down south and how far behind them we are. And there was a mm. sense sometimes of like, how dare you think that you can, you know, we've done all the work up north, we suffered and you keep, you think you have the right to keep throwing this in the face of the people who, who engaged in this work and actually maintained peace for so long. And I think that I just, I, I, I don't know about Jerry Adams because I don't know if the time and if it might just be an opportunity. Like I remember Martin McGuinness has been doorstepped by victims of IRA violence. And I just think the potential negative media associated with that 
whether that just keeps bringing that stuff up at a time when she and Fane are, I don't know, when is it actually going to be? Will it be before the general? No, it won't. It'll be after. It's after. But, it's, after but that's general. why, but, but that's why I think that, that Fianna Fáil thinking that's why kind of you know kind of Bertie he might have a fighting chance that he'll get mm-hmm. in by by, I mean, by, that's- by proxy you know that, that the Fianna Gaelers will it will kind of vote for him just to keep kind of Jerry out like you know yeah yeah no definitely but also like sh- like surely we have to have somebody in the country that that they believe they can put forward that hasn't got accusations of corruption against them I mean it's it's outrageous. Like yeah. it's actually. But when Fianna Fall, I mean, that's going to be a very short list, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there because I think that the, the Bertie stuff is going to run for a while. We've that's been a fishing expedition for a long time, and I think that unfortunately, also there is just a, a feeling in this country that whole Jack the Lad stuff. There's a reason that people let Charlie Hawkey away with what they let him away with for so long. There's almost that cheeky rogue thing that people that people will excuse anything, mm. and it's just. You'd like to think that things are getting so bad that people won't have any time for that. But let's, you know, let's wait, wait and see. Um, this has been The Week at Work. If you want to follow us on our socials, you can follow us on uh, The Week at Work at Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And you can support us through the Left Block Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash left block with a C. Um, and you'll also be able to see, if you go follow the Left Block socials, you'll be able to see some videos from last week's Kushkli or Skull Kushkli. Skull Kushkli. I'm not the... I'm not the best girl girl myself, but um, and you'll be if you support us on Patreon, you'll have the opportunity to buy early tickets for our next event. Bye. See you next week. <laughs>